Welcome to the Everyday PM podcast, the podcast where we discuss project management principles for your everyday life. My name is Ann Campia, and I'm a certified project slash program manager with over a decade of experience working for healthcare, retail, consumer goods, and tech industries. I am so excited to welcome two very special guests. And if you are a avid follower of the Everyday PM, you will have seen or listened to another episode with both Mark and Greg on it. So I am welcoming them back to the podcast. Mark and Greg, thank you so much for joining me again. And today we are talking about why projects fail. This is such an exciting topic. I can't wait to dig in. But before we do that, let's have both of my guests introduce themselves to our audience. So Greg, why don't we start with you for those who have not met you yet, although you've been on I don't know, what is this, maybe your fifth episode of the Everyday PM podcast? For those who have not met you yet, for our new audience, please take a brief moment to introduce yourself. Thank you. Well, and thanks for having me on again. And my name is Greg Christensen. I'm the vice president of Project Hub. That's a project management software solution. And I'm happy to be here with you once again to cover another interesting topic that should help people get their projects moving faster by learning why they fail. Awesome. And Mark? Hey, thanks for having me. And I, uh, I've, I've written a, a bunch of books on project management. I created the visual project management uh, methodology called Viewpoint, and uh, that's kind of what I'm promoting. Um, and uh, I've done lots of big projects, lots of small ones, lots of made lots of mistakes too. So, but we're not going to talk about those. <laughs> or are we now? Um, uh, so. Well, maybe. Yeah, we, don't, we don't know. So let's go ahead and dig in, dig in here, because this is such a great kind of very macro topic that we can easily get into dive into the details about. But I want to kind of start with some statistics that I pulled up from the interwebs here in terms of, you know, the most recent percentages of projects that are considered to have been failures. So we're hovering at about 70 percent, right, according to PMI, and about 42 percent of the companies that reported in say that they the reason they failed is just because they didn't understand the importance of the project or of project management, which baffling to me. The other percent here I have is 55% of project manage, project managers cited that it was budget overruns or, or something of that sort that was the reason for project failure. So anyhow, I think that those statistics kind of set us up for this environment of you can plan to fail, you're a project manager, you're doing all you can, but your project, there's still a chance of that project going awry. So let's start with your definition of failure. I think it's important to kind of give us a foundation of what we're talking about here. So Mark, why don't we start with how do you define project failure? Well, a project uh, will fail uh, if it doesn't deliver on time, if it doesn't produce the result that the project was uh, designed to do. Um, and uh, I think those are the two big things. Over budget, I mean, some people will say, well, the project failed because it was over budget, but I don't know, I've never seen a project that it actually came in at budget. So sort of, you know, um, it's not a failure, it's just more expensive than people thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And how about you, Greg? Well, interestingly enough, I hang my hat on the delivery deadline. I think that, that everything is all about delivering your project on time. I would agree with Mark that budget's really common. There's a few other factors, but I like to hang my hat on the date. If you can deliver on time and deliver what was promised, that right there should be a huge win. The other things, 
can be dealt with. And then kind of adding on to both of your definitions there is I tend to harp on quality. I've worked in consumer goods for so long that if I put a product out there that has some sort of technical failure, then I feel like the project has failed. We've missed something. And so anything that is above or or, excuse me, below par in terms of our quality measures and what we expected the product to do, I do, I would consider that for myself a project failure. Um, So I think, go ahead. No, I was going to say as as well, that sort of falls in the did, did the project deliver what it was supposed to do? And, you know, yeah. often it's a working project or a product, it's a working product or a product that will be successful in the marketplace or it'll be a piece of software that doesn't work the way it's supposed to, or, you know, anything that falls outside of the specifications of what the project is supposed to deliver is uh, a failure. So I'm with yeah. you. Sorry, yeah, I didn't absolutely. mean to interrupt. I'll- no, no, that's this is a conversation, right? So, Mark, yeah. I think you've written about why projects fail, and and now that we have our foundation for this conversation, what, why, why? I think that's the question we all want to know. Why do projects yeah. fail? Well, I think there are uh, there are five uh, things that that uh, are contributing to um, the, the project failure, um, and uh, none of those are the plan. None of them, um, you know, because plans, uh, you know, no plan is no plan is perfect, right? There's just no sense. So I've got it boiled down to like five different things. Um, and one of the things that happens in project management during execution is that uh, project the project processes tends to focus on what have we accomplished instead of what do we need to accomplish, right? And we talked about that the last time we were together. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, how, um, uh, how flexible is the team? You know, is the team inflexible? Well, this is not my job. Well, I sent this guy an email, um, but uh, I'm looking at, you know, people are, you know, do they have the same objective, right? Is everybody on the project team have the same objective to deliver the project? Is it crystal clear? You're in this project. This is what you're going to do while you're here. And so many times I've seen, um, particularly in uh, you know multidisciplinary projects, you know you've got the engineers, you've got the the fabricators, the production. You know they're all operating in their silos, and the only person that really is owning the project is the project manager and the project sponsor. Right? Those are the only two people. And right. so I see that if uh, project teams are are not don't have the same goal. Uh, then the project will definitely be extremely difficult to manage, highly unlikely to succeed. Um, The other thing that I see is that uh, uh, when the priorities, the task priorities for the people who are on the project are unclear or conflicting or constantly changing, um, you know, that's going to be creating a lot of uh, noise in the project uh, delivery process. Uh, And then uh, fourth is... uh, we don't know where the constraint is for the project. Hmm. So, you know, you know the, and uh, I think we'll take a, a page out of uh, Goldratt's book, you know, the constraint is the thing that is limiting the product project from moving forward. And it's not clear what that constraint is, where that leverage is. So people would get focused off, out in the weeds and they start working on the wrong things. And so that project, and then number five, is uh, just responsiveness, uh, you know, the tempo of the project. You know, sometimes, you know, we send an email and then we wait a week 
and it's our next project meeting. Oh my gosh, the guy never got back to me, you know, or whatever, right? That mm. the team is slow. So focusing on the past, uh, mixed uh, messages on um, what the goal is, uh, priorities constantly shifting. Mm -hmm. We don't know where the constraint is and slow response, that's five. Right. So I spent a lot of time talking about this five. Sorry. No, no, don't apologize. It just got me thinking about, you know, when I started my career as a PM, one of the things that I uh, kind of really just became ingrained in my the way I conduct myself is that no matter who's failing within the project team, that it ultimately rests on the project manager's shoulders. And so as you're talking through those five points, it kind of brings me back to this, this thought of, uh, do you believe that of those five, the project manager has any type of control over trying to bring the project back on track? Yeah, no, not typically. Um, because I think if we take just take the first one, uh, the first one the project manager does, focusing on the on the future and you know changing the, the emphasis of the team from reporting on what they have done and telling you what the problems are and shifting the emphasis from that to, okay, what are we going to do today? What are we going to do this week and who's going to do it? That is the, uh, the job of the project manager, but the project manager can't fix, the project manager alone cannot fix the problem of mixed or um, incorrect reward systems. So for example, a purchasing guy uh, you know, his, he's being measured on purchase price variance. Did I get the cheapest one or did I get it? You know, did I get the right vendor? And so, you know, you're bringing this supply chain guy on or gal onto your team and they're, you know, your, your project is in trouble and you need this supplier to get moving air freight, charter plane, whatever it is to get this item that you need. But the purchasing guy says, well, if I do that, then, you know, I'm going to, my metric is going to suffer. Sure. And so the project manager is not going to have control over that because that's an organizational issue and not a PM. Now the PM can recognize it and elevate that, but uh, certainly the problem of the, the mixed rewards or, uh, or incorrect rewards uh, will definitely is out of their scope. Got um, it. Yeah. And the, the, now project managers can work on the task priorities. Uh, if we're, if we know, what the work is and where we're going to do, you know, the, the project manager can focus on that. But what I see is, you know, a lot of project managers are playing whack-a-mole, you know, or just responding to the boss or whatever the thing is and don't have a good sense of pushing back and saying, listen, you know, you've given me this priority that I've got to do this thing, but if I do this thing, then this other thing is going to suffer. And that's certainly uh, something that the project manager has control over. Mm -hmm. um, the project manager can also know where the constraint is. You know, yeah. Constraint shows up. It's not, it's not hard to spot. It's, it's, uh, every, you know, I think if you ask the project team, where's the constraint? Oh, it's Herbie. He's over there. You know, everybody knows who it is because that person or that department or that supplier, they're being named in every project meeting that you go to. Right. So it's not, but what, project managers don't necessarily recognize that that is the critical leverage point to push your project forward. And that's certainly the job of the project manager to break that bottleneck and get it elevated to the right person. And then of course, uh, the responsiveness, uh, the project manager, you know, I, I don't want the project. I, I never thought that the project manager should be the task police. No. You know? 
Um, well, the project manager can say, hey, you know, we're getting a slow response. You know, we need to pick up the tempo. But, you know, that goes back to the measurement problem that I talked about a minute ago. I mean, if people are not aware that, you know, we had the rule 24 hours, you know, any question, any problem, you have to respond in 24 hours. And that if the project manager can set that expectation and enforce that expectation um, through smart management, meaning, you know, if I've got a team of people and, you know, I'll pick on the supply chain guy again, um, just because I like the supply chain guys, you know, the, uh, uh, but the, you know, the, the project manager can work with the leader of the project of the supply chain organization and say, listen, we need a 24 hour. Can you help me with that? And that's something that certainly is in the control of the project manager. Sure. Sure. Um, so, so really the big, the big, everything is in the project manager's uh, realm of control, except getting all the people on the project on the project. Got it. Yeah. Makes sense. Greg, what do you think about that? Well, as you know, and we talked about it on previous episodes, I've been consuming a lot of the things that Mark has written. I'm a little bit more well-versed than I probably really am, if that makes any sense, because uh, a lot of it makes sense to me kind of naturally because of what I've, what I've already consumed of his. And then I'm a little bit familiar with uh, Goldrat and his concepts. And so I'm going to bring up something that Mark brings up sometimes, but Goldrat specifically says, this is a quote, show me how you measure me and I'll show you how I behave. And what it really gets down to is the behavior. So you've got these project managers that are trying to maintain and push and manage this project. They've got a certain amount of authority, they're empowered, et cetera, but still who gets put in place, that's not on them. So they have to really find, I actually think I'm really interested in your answer on this and because you're, you're really good at that you know, a lot of the soft skills, a Zen approach to how to get people kind of moving in the right direction. Mark's really big on, let's not worry about who, what, when yesterday. Let's look at where are we at right now? Let's get things moving. So I don't know if I really answered your question, but that's what I'm doing here is taking it in and realizing that it's all about getting people moving the right way, focusing on the right things. And that's a behavioral change that is a challenge as you go down line. Yeah. Because they're, and, uh, they're, they're afraid to commit. Right. I think there's a lot of moving parts here. And, and one of the most unpredictable variables is the people. It's the people that you inherit on your team. It's the people who are sponsoring the project. And I think what you're saying, Mark, is that while we have so much control over some of the parameters that are set forth uh, within our project as a project manager, that there are really th some things that we either inherit or they come to us a specific way and it will, it might take moving mountains to get that to, to be able to be something that we can control as project managers, or maybe we just will never be able to control that one variable um, in within the project. And that comes with, even if you walk it back a little bit, that could be company culture, that could be the support of your leadership team, that could be, you know, misalignment on uh, company strategy versus what the project is actually executing against. There's, there's a whole plethora of things that I've seen in my experience that have led to project failure that really ultimately is out of the control of the project manager. I do think I inherited that perception that everything is in the control of the project manager because I do 
tend to lead so much with empathy and that that tends to weigh on your shoulders if you if you lead in that way because then you want to without thinking about it you are inheriting all of the problems around you and you're trying to fix all the problems around you which can be come across as very authentic to some people and that's how you manage the people part of it but then can on the flip side of it playing devil's advocate to my own uh, way that I lead can then weigh very heavily on your shoulders and you think that you can control certain things of the project that are failing when ultimately if you look back at it or you look at the root cause it was something that was never in my control to begin with so I think Mark you make a lot of great points about what is in our sphere of control as PMs and what is not. And having this, this mentality of don't harp on the past for too long because the project's going to continue to fail until you try to start focusing on the future and how to get it back on track. So is there any, I mean, you talked a lot about um, some of the signs and things that we, we can look out for, but what, what specifically are some of the early warning signs that you've seen in your experience and how have you been able to troubleshoot that to get the project back on track? Well, I think, you know, the first, the first one is, you know, focusing on the past and, and that, you know, that's, I want to say that's the easiest thing to, to fix, but uh, it's easy because it doesn't require a lot of uh, process change or anything. It's just changing your approach and how you approach the task of managing the project, right? So, you know, that sense of being future oriented, you know, you can lead with empathy, em- empathy and, you know, still focus on the future. Um, I think what happens is people get caught up in the, oh, we made this mistake or there was a defect or this supplier is late or this engineer, you know, they, they missed a deadline and we can get all caught up in kind of that um, for the lack of a, a better term, we'll call it all of that drama of mm-hmm. uh, missed expectations, right? So you know, right. the project manager can get caught up in the m- missed expectations and say, well, or they can say, all right, well, this is the reality as it is right now. And going forward, we want to do it this way. And you, you know, listen, we know that people make mistakes and, you know, miss deadlines and that, you know, that's just part of it. Right. And then, uh, you know, you, if you're doing software, you run it through test and then it fails test and you're like, oh, and then you got to go do back and loop it, loop it back again. Or, you know, you didn't get the uh, uh, certification that you wanted to get, you know, and now you've got to go back and change the product uh, again. And, you know, all of that stuff happens. But I think the project manager can really have an influence on, you know, all right, are we going to beat up the guy that miss their deadline or are we going to just say all yeah. right well, <laughs> <That's good>. you, know, <laughs> you know well and of course you know that <laughs> we're all humans here so <laughs> <laughs> we can get mad we're like oh, we can get mad you know and that happens too and, and that's all right i'm just thinking that you know the project manager really has to think about all right what's coming next you know what's yeah. going to be the next obstacle who 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 needs to address that so if you think about what the project manager is doing, the project manager is looking ahead, how far ahead, you know, you, we don't know, um, and anticipating what's coming up and making sure that, um, sorry, my, no worries. my phone there, um, the, you know, the project manager can be proactive in, in that kind of stuff. And um, it's not, you know, we're not being um, authoritarian, we're not 
you know, beating people up, you know, what we're, what we're doing is we're saying, Hey, you know, here's the expectation. And, you know, thanks for coming to the meeting. Uh, but the meeting is not about reporting. You know, if you want to report, we'll have a separate meeting about that. This is about planning our activities for the next, for the next step. And that's the most important mm -hmm. thing, um, you know, in terms of, and, and of course, you know, when we have these conflicts, you know, the, where, you know, we're missing deadlines or you've got somebody on the project that can't deliver when they're supposed to, um, excuse me, um, then it's up to the project manager to do a dive on that and say, well, why, right? And I think that a lot of times what happens is we, we don't even consider the fact that, hey, this guy's not going to get a bonus or his, his, other, his real boss or her real boss is going to give them a, a problem if they do what you want to do. And I think that as a project manager, we have to be sensitive to that and say, well, listen, you know, it's not this guy's fault that he's, he's stuck in a conflict, right? So, you know, the project manager can look for those conflicts and be more of a conflict resolution person than uh, a, a task manager. Because we already, you know, we don't want the project manager to be the task manager, right? The task police, that's not what we want. Absolutely. So uh, now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, well, Greg, you know, you're learning all of this, right? In terms of why projects fail, you're taking in some of uh, what Mark has written on this and how has that really shaped your understanding of project execution? How does that intertwine with everything you've been learning? Well, I think overall, got the mascot in the background there. I was gonna Sorry. say, I think your yeah, dog got, has something okay. to say about we it got, too. We got my phone, your dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he might have a couple of project failures and he's handling it wrong. I think my dog is now talking to your dog. This is great. <laughs> probably, probably. This will be an exciting episode. Sorry, everybody, but, you know, dogs will be Special dogs. Special guests. Yes. So for me, I've been really trying to differentiate, and I'm trying to differentiate well, where things happen as it relates to planning and execution. So I'm very focused on the execution aspect of things and what I'm actually finding out when I take what I learned from you and what I learned from Mark and then what I put my own spin on when I'm out talking to people about it. I'm finding that most people, I even did a survey recently, didn't get a heavy response, but I did a survey and the majority of people think that their projects fail in the planning phase and I'm not saying plans aren't important. They are absolutely critical. But what I've really learned where I'm at right now today is your plan is great, but it can't see what didn't happen yet. And that's why execution is the key. Execution is the only place a project can actually fail. If in, in the view that's been shaped for me thus far, that's where you're going to find the most impactful way to drive your project. So I have more Kool-Aid for you. Let's dig in there because why why do you think then that the survey response was so heavy on on that part of the project? Any I thoughts? Think, I, I actually think that we are all often trained that way by our jobs, by life, and process in and of itself is process. It's a great thing. It really is. But when you've set a plan, an initiated process. Now what happens? What happens when the things come up that my plan could not have possibly seen? What happens when I discover something like, well, we are actually taking our plan, putting it into motion, and we're finding that the people that are a part of that plan are overestimating. In other words, putting in too much safe time 
mm, on their right. estimated completions. So it has an impact that, sorry about that, an impact that permeates the project execution. It, it's showing up throughout. So I, I think the reason people responded in that way is they think that's where it happens. And interestingly enough, those that chose, for example, multitasking or mm-hmm. unplanned constraints, unca- unplanned constraints are actually bottlenecks that you didn't see in your plan. So yeah. it was the survey was designed in a way to see what people really think. Multitasking in and of itself actually is one of the most problematic things that happens in the execution phase. Because if you've got too much buffer on what you're doing and she's got too much buffer on what she's doing, it starts to create time gaps where people aren't actually doing that for this project. They're multitasking. The the reason multitasking is such a bad thing is one person cannot do two things at once with full force. Mm -hmm. It's not possible. Right. So the survey was really designed to figure out what are people thinking and it's what I suspected and it's what I'm, what I'm really focused on now. So I'm trying to kind of stitch that together and figure out how to resolve it for people. And it's challenging because they know they have to change behaviors and they don't really want to, because then their boss is going to say, what are you doing? And they're yeah. like, I'm trying to do well. And they're like, well, yeah, but what about this? So it becomes a mess. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that thought too, because when I, I remember when I was studying for the PMP and, and in some of the courses I was taking that there was such a huge emphasis. And I think it also hovered around PMBOK six edition, where there was a huge emphasis in the inputs and outputs of what you were doing in the planning stage and how it, without saying it directly to a project manager, it almost felt like PMI was telling you that that's where your emphasis and all your effort should be placed all the time that you could put into planning will solve all the rest of the problems that come afterwards. And, and I, and I love the kind of the dichotomy of what you just said, Greg, versus what, at least the way my takeaways from when I was really heavily into uh, studying for the PMP that I just felt like there was some uh, emphasis around the planning phase. And that's why I probably would have responded in that way too, to the survey where in fact, you bring up so, some very, very great and valid points about the areas that were then the residual responses are really not happening in the planning phase. Those are all in the execution phase. So I think um, yeah. all great points, Greg. Mark, any thoughts here? Yeah, well, uh, it, Greg, that echoes the, uh, the research that I commissioned a couple of years ago uh, be- before I wrote my book you know, on uh, visual project management that... Uh, you know, what do people think the problem is? And most people think the problem is plans. And um, if we, no. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. <laughs> uh, surprisingly, um, you know, I don't have a research, uh, the, the research uh, in front of me, but if you're interested, you can go on, the, on, on our website and, and get it. But, um, you know, we found that most people think that the, pro- the reason that projects fail is planning. And, and I think that's because, you know, when you get into execution, you know, unexpected things happen. And you're like, oh, I should have done a better job planning. I should have, you know, I should have anticipated that. Why wasn't this in the risk register? Oh, we didn't do risk registers. Oh, well, there's that. That's kind of a planning part. And I think, um, so what happens is people point to a lack of planning 
because they get surprises during the project. And, mm -hmm. and of course, surprises are the very nature of projects and people will get that. So I think that's what leads people to think that it's the plan because they say, oh, well, I didn't expect this and it wasn't in the, and because I didn't expect it, you know, I'm, so therefore I did a bad job of planning. And I think that, uh, I think that project managers are too hard on themselves uh, on their planning ability because it's, you know, if you think about a project plan, you know, you're predicting the future, you know, and who, I mean, okay, you know, we might've built this steam shovel, you know, 20 times before, but this is a special one that goes on a boat or something, you know, oh yeah, it's the same. And then you put it on the boat and the boat sinks. Oh, well, we didn't think about that, you know, so we must've had a bad plan. So I think it's really just a, you know, people are uh, seeing these events during project execution that they didn't expect and they say, well, I didn't expect it without realizing that that's just kind of how we, the projects work and you're going to get weird stuff happen. You know, someone's going to drive a fork truck off the dock or, you know, you know, you're going to have a valve blow up or, you know, whatever that, whatever the unexpected event happens, yeah. it's going to happen. And you, uh, you can't know what you don't know until it happens. Yeah. 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 And it's not, I mean, you can only plan, you know, for what you know now. And projects by their nature are uh, <laughs> the, the uncertainty is what makes a project a project, right? Otherwise, we'd be in manufacturing. We'd build a production line. Otherwise, it, you know, now it's a project because we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then when you think about it, even in our everyday lives, right? Consider, consider the time that you you are planning a vacation or something and you forgot all the kids' jackets. I'm just whatever. Yeah. But, you know, when you have the conversation with your spouse, it's not, it's not about, oh, well, we forgot the jackets. Let's just go buy new ones. You're not, you're not caught, caught in the moment. You're thinking about, well, it's your fault because when we were packing, you totally <laughs> forgot. So here you are now stuck in the Didn't past. Didn't you know we were going skiing? Part. Yeah, exactly. Didn't you know? Didn't you look up the weather? You know, it's always, again, looking retrospectively at the past and, and blaming the part where, you were planning on on things and and oh you missed that so i think i think we're we're actually and let me know what you both think about this but i do believe we'll start to see a shift here in terms of that response to greg's survey because i feel like that is uh, in many ways uh, antiquated thinking in terms of being stuck in the planning phase and blaming everything on the planning phase where as we get more and more hybrid or agile projects uh, that are coming to the forefront, I feel like those types of projects we spend maybe, maybe two weeks planning, maybe four weeks at the most planning. And then we just go, we go straight to execution and we say, we'll just figure it out as we're executing, as things come up. And I feel like with more of that type of those types of projects being, um, being managed by project managers that you might start to see a shift in that response from blaming it all on the past and the planning phase versus blaming it on the execution part of it. I, I think that's a really interesting take, Anne, because something that you just said, and I, I think Mark would agree with this, is plans are good, but execution is where it's going to happen. And if you're executing in a certain way, if you're set up, say, for example, using a viewpoint philosophy, you're set up to see quicker, mitigate faster, keep the project moving. And what's interesting about that whole thing is one of my side projects that I'm working on is something I was planning 
and planning and planning. And I was like, oh, I got to get ready. It's got to be like this. It's got to be like that. And one day I saw something where someone was talking about this concept of stop that, go. And yeah. I did. And it started to make a heck of a lot more sense because in the planning phase, I was stuck because I was trying to anticipate everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. You can't possibly do that. So like Mark says, and, and like you say, if only we can get moving and go that way, it'll, it'll kind of fill itself in. And it sounds haphazard and reckless, but it's actually not because what you're doing is you're simplifying and you're allowing yourself the ability to get unstuck and moving. So it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a human concept that's applicable to our mechanized concepts of work and project delivery and all those things. I, I hope that's a fair assessment and it makes sense. No, absolutely. And I think it, it kind of intertwines with the question I had for Mark, which is, you know, when is it good enough? When is it, when is your plans good enough to just go? I, I think you've, you've done a little bit of work and, and you've talked about this. So would love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah. I, all right. Well, I, I, there's two kind of two, um, two, two things I want to think about, you know, one is, all right, if I'm planning a project for the first time, right. Let's say that, you know, there's, there's, two different kinds of projects. There's the truly one-off, you know, we've never done this before kind of, or anything like it kind of a project. And, you know, for that kind of a project, you know, you'll want to get your um, stakeholders, the people who are actually going to do the work, or at least the, your subject matter experts in the room, making sure that you have all the relationships defined. I think what's good enough is, we have a sense of what are the relationships of all of the tasks that have to be accomplished? What are the deliverables at each one of those tasks? You know, we've identified uh, any stage gates in the projects. Um, and we don't get too hung up on task estimation, task time estimation. I mean, you know, I always tell people, look, but give me the give me the green light time on your task. I mean, green light time means, listen, I'm going to drive to work today. I get all green lights all the way. It's going to take X. Mm -hmm. Nothing's going to go wrong. You know, it's going to take, you know, three weeks. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to get called into a meeting or get sick or whatever thing might happen. I'm going to devote hundred percent to this task. I think it's going to take X and you know, that's good enough because we put buffers in the project, right? We say the project has a buffer. You don't have a buffer. And I understand if something goes wrong, we're not going to beat you up because you made a bad estimate on that. We've got a buffer and that's what that buffer is for, right? To absorb all of that under and over estimation of task times. The big thing we want is what are the relationships of the tasks? Who's going to own them? And that is good enough. Now for a project where we have a series of projects like, um, uh, let's say that we're an engineer to order manufacturer and, you know, we make, uh, I don't know, cabinets, uh, kitchen cabinets or, you know, kitchen cabinets are pretty simple, right? They're boxes, but they have all boxes and drawers and they have doors and, you know, framing elements and stuff like that. But then you get into, okay, what's the finish? What kind of knobs do we want? What's the door look like? You know, there's all kind of like these different plug-in variables. And oh, oh, by the way, we're going to go to install this place that we've never installed before. You know, for those kinds of projects, I'm looking at the history and say, all right, well, how long does stuff take? Where, where are the management points? And I'm just going to map out a kind of just a simple flow chart and say, we're going to do this, 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 and then we're going to stop 
and approve, and then we're going to go this, 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 and we're going to stop and approve. So we build more of a, a swim lane chart than a project plan uh, for those kinds of projects, because we don't need to do that. Um, the other thing I want to mention is something that um, Greg touched on was, you know, hey, stuff's going wrong in the project and stuff. And um, I think uh, a lot of people get confused about the role of uh, a risk register and the risk management process in the planning process, right? You know, because, you know, you, you make your plan and you say, okay, if everything goes according to plan, we're going to be here. But here's the uncertainty in the project. Uh, I did, a, I did a project for a, a company that was uh, designing a, a chip for the PS, the Sony uh, PS PlayStations, right? And they were, they were upgrading the USB. I'm going from USB to C. So this is a couple of years, a couple of years ago. And they're like, man, we go to B, when we go put the, that, that in the chip, then the chip melts and it's hot. And, you know, so, you know, what we had to do was build kind of like a, a little off-ramp and say, okay, well, if we don't get this problem solved, you know, then we're going to go do it this way. And that happens. And it's not part of the project plan necessarily. It's more of a contingency planning process that happens mm -hmm. outside of the normal what are, the, what are the steps that we have to accomplish and what are the resources that we have to accomplish? So, um, you know, good enough is just what understanding what is the work, who's going to be do it, what's the sequence, and we don't get too hung up on how long does it take and we don't beat people up in execution because you said it was going to take a week and now it's taking three. Well, you know, that's just, that's just another form of the other project plan, you know, the other project yeah. certainty that I was talking about. Absolutely. So, Makes sense. I love, I'm carrying that motto with me all the time now. And just like Mark has told us what good enough means, I think this podcast has been good enough for our audience. See what I did there. So job, uh, thank Anna. you both. <laughs> thank you both for joining me and speaking about why projects fail and also understanding that there are moments where you have to tell yourself it's good enough. Let's just go. Greg, I love that also about what you've been working on. So looking forward to seeing what that's all about too. So that will do it for Mark, Greg, and I in this installment of the Everyday PM podcast. Mark, for those that want to continue this conversation with you, where can they find you online? Uh, you can go to projectsinlesstime.com and you'll find all of uh, the books and white papers. There's no gateway that you have to enter in your email. I just want to have the material out there. Of course, you got to go to Amazon to buy my book, projects, uh, Visual Project Management, but you know, there's that. Oh, so definitely have to support you. Absolutely. And yeah. Greg, what about if folks want to follow you? Oh, for me, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Greg Christensen. You'll see the Project Hub stuff and a few other things. Hopefully it's good. Uh, <laughs> and then you could also go to projecthub.com. And if you were to sign up, that's because you're intending to try it out, get in there and have some fun with it. And you'll reach me that way because I'm typically going to have visibility to that when people engage. And those are the two ways for me. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak with you both again, and I hope to see you back on the podcast for another engaging topic. I think we can go off on good enough in another complete series of this. So um, folks, you can also find me on LinkedIn if you want to connect as well as the everydaypm.com. Make sure to support the Everyday PM podcast. We're on all of your podcasting platforms, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, you name it. Give us a five-star review. Leave us a great comment. Let us know what you think 
about why projects fail. You can also watch the video version of this and see Mark scramble for his phone and Greg tell his dog to stop barking and me tell my dog to stop barking as well. Uh, you could watch us do all of these shenanigans on my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Ancampia. While you're there, subscribe to the channel, click like on this video, leave us a comment and click that bell for notifications of when new content goes up. So that will do it for all of us. Thanks so much for joining me and Mark and Greg. And until next time, take care.